There is a way in which every Christian preacher can bring conviction upon any Christian audience today. All he has to do is say, how is your prayer life? Do you pray? Do you pray with consistency? Do you pray with earnestness? Do you pray to see God's will done in your life? Do you seek the Lord for important decisions before them and then after them? Are you seeking to submit your will to God's will in prayer? Are you seeking to worship him in prayer? To give thanks to him in prayer? To to get time away and to commune with God in prayer? And when we say these things, we can feel a sense of inadequacy and conviction and shame because in our day and age, we are not a Christian people, a church in the modern world that is known for being a people of prayer. We're known for our independence. We are known for our, our pragmatism. We are known for our administration, our organization. We are known for our efficiency and we're also known for a lack of prayer. Robert Murray McShane, Scottish minister, died as a young man. But he said, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and no more. R.C. Sproul wrote, prayer is, the, is, is to the Christian what breath is to life. And Charles Spurgeon wrote, I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this, the measure of the intensity of your prayer. Now, when we hear quotes like this, we probably give a, yeah, I see that. But you don't know how busy I am. We all have excuses, right? My life is very full. And Luther once wrote, he goes, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. And Paul Washer said, I have never met an old saint who regretted having spent too much time in prayer. But I have met many who regretted having spent too little. You might think, well, okay, busyness is not an excuse. Even Joshua tarried and meditated upon God's word and in prayer day and night. The, the, the commander of Israel's armies, the leader of Israel, he gave himself to prayer. You might consider, well then, my gifts lie somewhere else. Some are gifted to people of prayer and my gifts lie elsewhere. And Charles Spurgeon said this, about men who said that to him. He said, I would rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. Leonard Ravenhill wrote this, no man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is plain. The people who are not praying are strain. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, but few prayers. Many singers, but few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many, many interferers, but few intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. Failing here in prayer, we fail everywhere. And so prayer, just the mention of prayer brings conviction. And prayer is the, the thermometer, as Spurgeon says, of, of the vitality of our spiritual life. It's the great indicator of your dependence upon the Lord. It's the indicator of your experiential knowledge of his grace and his power. It's the, the test of true devotion and piety. And, and could it be that with so many in the Christian church today, with, with so many resources, with, with the word of God in many different editions and volumes all over your house, Many sermons, many podcasts, many commentaries, many articles, many journals. But could it be with the plethora of all the information of the word of God and yet still being subdued in a sense by sin in our lives? Could it be a lack of prayer? Could it be that that's why marriages in the church of God today are so many are, are fracturing or even past that point of fracture? 
Could it be that the reason why so many children are, are strained is, is in part due to a, a lack of prayer? Could it be that the church has so little influence in the world today because of a lack of prayer and spiritual devotion to God? Could this be why revival tarries? Could this be why you lack direction and clarity in your life? Because we're not seeking the Lord out in prayer. Don't get me wrong. It's not as if we we pray and do nothing, but prayer actually fuels obedience. Consider a man who wakes up early in the morning and then prays for his wife and prays for his children, prays for his day at work. Will he not then give all of his efforts to be a minister to his wife and to his children and to to be a light in the workplace and to represent the Lord Jesus Christ because he has spent that morning in prayer? And so prayer fuels our obedience and innumerable other righteous fruits. And so as we consider the topic of prayer, we're actually going to, by God's providence, we're in a section of the gospel of Luke where Jesus is teaching an extended lesson upon prayer to teach his disciples how to pray. And and it's my prayer and it's my goal, my aim that over the coming weeks, as we consider Jesus teaching on prayer in response to his disciples saying, Lord, teach us how to pray, that all of us, no matter where you are in in your prayer life, whether you don't pray at all or whether you pray just a little bit or whether your, your prayers feel so weak and so powerless and, and just useless, what am I doing? That no matter where you are, that we see an improvement, a growth and a, and a vitality, a growing vitality as we commune before the Lord in prayer. And so if, if you are one who says, this is an area where I need to grow, then I hope not only you, but, but me, that all together we'd be growing together in our practice of prayer in the coming weeks as we're instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ. God can change the leopard spots. He can take a heart of stone and make it into a heart of flesh. And so he can take a, a proud and independent people and make us dependent, submissive, humble people of prayer. He can do that. And if we, if we desire that, then we will tune in to this text and this portion of scripture. And then we would all with one voice and one heart say, Lord, teach us to pray. That's what we want. And as we examine the topic of prayer, in one sense, your progress in communion with God in prayer is, is quantifiable. It's either you pray or you don't pray. And, and it's when you do pray, it's, it's how much do you pray? Is, is there a vitality? Is there, is there a joy in prayer? So there, there's a, a quantitative aspect and then a qualitative aspect. Is, is my heart drawn to God? Is, am I established in comfort and in strength and in joy as I commune with God? Is there, is there a quality in my prayer? A vitality in it? And so it's my prayer that in the coming weeks we'll see a, a growth in, in both quantitative and qualitative prayer among us as a congregation. We want to see God's power. We want to enjoy him. We want to be his disciples who come before him in prayer. And so look at me in Luke chapter 11, verse number one. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. This is an interesting opening to Luke chapter 11. And what's interesting about this is how uninteresting the rest of the details are, except the fact that Jesus was praying. This was just in a certain place. We don't even know the place. One disciple asked, we don't even know who that disciple was. We don't know where this was, when this was, who this was, who asked this question. None of the details matter except Jesus Christ was praying. And when he finished praying, the disciples said, teach us to do that. Of all the details, all they remembered was the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer. And it must have put such an impression upon them that when he rose from praying, they said, Lord, teach us to do that. We want what you have. And what's interesting, the disciples 
after Jesus fed the 5,000 loaves and the fish, after he cast out demons, after he calmed the, the wind and the waves, they didn't say, Lord, teach us to do that. After he would preach and, and someone say, like, well, no one has spoke as this man has spoke. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to preach. But of all the things that Jesus did, they were, they were stunned by how he prayed. And they said, Lord, teach us to pray. They left such an impression upon them. Now, the reality is, in our day and age, as I've mentioned, there are so few who are, who are known to be people of prayer. So few of us have an example in our lives where we know someone who has been so burdened to come before the Lord in prayer, so constant, so earnest, so fervent in prayer. And, and to see them in prayer, we would say, you need to teach us to pray. Teach me to pray. But don't let that be an excuse for us to say, well, that's why I'm, I'm prayerless. I never had an example. I never had a father or mother or someone in my life who who I look upon and say, wow, look at them pray. And so I can imitate them in their prayer. I'm reminded of, many of you know, Vodi Bauckham, who's, who's well known today. He writes and he teaches and preaches about, about family and about fatherhood and parenting. And here's a man who had no example of that growing up. He was raised by a single Buddhist mother, <laughs> came to faith later in life, but has given himself to study the word and to read saints of old who made this a priority in their lives. And so now he teaches on it. And the same is true when it comes to prayer. If you can't think of an example in your life of someone who is a person of prayer to which you can go to and say, teach me to pray like you pray. Then it's incumbent upon us then to learn and then to be the example for others around us. That we might leave a legacy for our children, for our spouses, for those around us in the congregation that we know. Of, of there is a person of prayer. Oh, they didn't have an example, but they, they learned at the seat of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's to his example that we're going to turn today to see what can we learn from the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might be taught to pray as he prayed. And then we might be an example by God's grace to others that they might learn to pray after the pattern of our Lord. And so this is what we're going to do in tackling this text. Because when the, when the disciples say here, Lord, teach us to pray. They not only saw Jesus praying here in this certain place, but they had seen him pray in different occasions until finally they're saying, Lord, teach us to do what you are doing. God, we, we want to know how to pray. And so what I'm going to do is, we're going to go back earlier in the Gospel of Luke and look at times where Luke takes note about Jesus praying and the circumstances and the manner in which he prayed and what he prayed for and how God answered those prayers. And we're going to look at those examples until we get here to chapter 11 and then learn from Jesus' example in prayer. What it is that, that made the disciples say, Lord, teach us to do what you are doing. What is it that they saw? that they ask for his instruction in prayer. Okay, so I want you, you can either turn there or listen, but we're, it's all going to be in the gospel of Luke. We're going to stay in the gospel, but you can flip back to Luke chapter three and verse 21 and 22. If you, if you have a handout, a number of these passages are written in the handout. There's a few places we're going to visit. And our point of starting here in Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, is to see examples of Jesus in prayer and then to see what that teaches us about prayer. So Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So here we have Jesus being baptized. And immediately after being baptized, he was praying. And as he was praying, the heavens were rent open, torn open. And then down comes the Spirit of God like a dove. In response, we would assume to Jesus' prayer. 
And then the Father in heaven says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We see here that Jesus' prayers are effective. We see here that Jesus prayed before significant events. We're going to see that. And then also after significant events. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him from on high. That's one example of Jesus praying. Turn forward to Luke chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. Luke chapter 5, 15 and 16. It says, But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Here's a passage describing how super busy Jesus was. He was busy because word was spreading and so crowds kept coming and crowds who were needy, crowds who were thirsty, crowds who were hungry, they wanted teaching, they wanted healing, they wanted Jesus' presence. And in the midst of all the busyness of Jesus' ministry, he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. Now this is not just a one-time thing like as if Jesus was fed up. This is a habitual pattern of Jesus withdrawing to a desolate place to pray. That's how the, the grammatical construction of the sentence. This is a, a habit. This is a pattern. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This is very uncharacteristic of us today. When, typically when we're confronted with the busyness of life, we think, okay, we need to better multitask. We have to do more things at once. We are going to have to, to meet every demand here. Uh, those people who are, who are especially busy feel a burden to, to meet every need that is before them and to, to help every person that, that may come into their life and needs help. And even when we're not busy, we live in a culture and a time when we feel we need to, to fill the void. We are a culture and a people that hates silence, that hates thinking, that hates reflection. We're like a DJ on the radio and there's, like, there's dead air. We're like, oh no, what's, what's going on? And just look at when you're outside and you walk around and you see people walk around, you know, it's almost everybody has earbuds or earpods or headphones on. The, the noise must keep on coming in, whether that's music or, or podcasts or, or radio, whatever it might be. And even in the Christian realm, we, we have our podcasts and we have sermons and we have the radio. And we have all these sources that are constantly coming in. We never want a time of, of this silence and reflection and contemplation. We're consumed with social media. We're consumed with the world's headlines. We follow our sports teams. Some keep an eye on the market and, and rarely do we take time just to think, just to meditate, just to pray, just to get alone and to withdraw and to pray and to commune with God. And so much of prayer comes through the gateway of contemplation and meditation If we are not giving ourselves to meditation and to contemplation on the things of God, we won't be moved to a place of prayer and communion. And we'll find the only time that we're praying is in times of crisis, in times of great need, because we're not giving ourselves to to contemplate and to meditate, to ruminate, to give our minds to, to think about God. And we see Jesus in the busyness. He would withdraw so he could be alone with God. Turn to Luke chapter 6, verse number 12. Luke 6, verse 12. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. All night he continued in prayer to God. And this was right before On the next day, he would choose 12 disciples to be those foundation stones of the church, to be his apostles, to be his sent ones. 
And so before this monumental decision where he will teach and train and charge these men to go out in his name to advance the kingdom of God, he spends the entire night alone in prayer. This was a big decision. And so he tarried and persevered in prayer all night to God. Look also in Luke chapter 9 verse 18. Luke chapter 9 verse 18. It says there, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? This begins a conversation in which Jesus professes that he is the Christ. This is the midst of people wondering about the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ is about to reveal his identity and then speak about his coming death. And his disciples were with him But he was praying alone. This is an odd way to to phrase it. Jesus was in prayer alone and the disciples were with him. Demonstrates here that Jesus does not wait for others to pray. He's not going to use the fact that others around him are not praying as an excuse that he would not pray. But he would still be alone in prayer even in the midst of these disciples as he's about to reveal his identity and speak about his death. Look also in Luke 9, verse 28. It says there, now about eight days after these sayings, that these are sayings about discipleship and counting the cost and following him. Now after eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. So he's praying alone. Here he brings his disciples to go and to pray with him on the mountain. And it's there in prayer that he is then transfigured and he shows and reveals the glory of God as he is made known in his glory. And again, in response to his prayer. And so what can we learn from these examples of Jesus in prayer? The disciples have witnessed these occasions of Jesus praying And so now in Luke chapter 11, they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. Now, as you read those examples earlier in the gospel of Luke, there's something we don't learn. We don't learn about a particular posture in prayer. It's not as if prayer is going to be effective if you're you're down on your knees or your face to the ground or if you have your hands clasped or if you raise up your face towards heaven or raise your hands. None of those are instructive or indicative of Jesus' prayer. He also doesn't teach us through his example a certain direction in which we need to pray or a certain place that is more holy than other places. He would go to a desolate place to pray, go up on a mountaintop to pray. He'd pray when the disciples are there. He'd pray when he was alone. There is not a particular place or, or direction when he came before the Lord in prayer. There's also not a, a certain pattern to his prayers. There is also not a certain uh, regularity to his prayers. I was like, oh no, the, the bell just sounded. I need to pray. Oh, it's, it's three times a day. It's five times a day. Whatever it may be, we just need to, to pray. And when Jesus tarries in prayer all night, you can imagine that his prayers are, are not formulaic. They're not patterned. It's not a, a recipe, a cookbook that he just draws from and begins to recite and read these prayers. Can you imagine him all night saying, my father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Till the morning comes, he instructs us elsewhere not to engage in that kind of vain repetition. So we learn here a number of ways of not to pray or of things that we can get hung up on and think, well, this is true prayer, where it has nothing to do with Jesus praying. So what do we see? We see his earnestness. We see his constancy. We see his perseverance. We see his pattern of prayer in all seasons of his life, especially through major transitions, major events, major revelations. He is in prayer and persevering in prayer. Now, I know many have made reference to the fact that, well, if Jesus 
needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray? Because he's a son of God. Infinite in power and knowledge and wisdom. He knows all things. And, and here he comes, God in human flesh without sin. And he is constantly in prayer. And so it's one thing to conclude, well, if Jesus is constant in prayer, so we in our weakness and infirmities in our sin, we must be constant in prayer. But it still doesn't teach us how to pray or what exactly is prayer. What is Jesus doing? If he is the son of God, if he is infinitely righteous and pure, if he is full of wisdom and knowledge and power, if he's in perfect harmony with the father, then why is Jesus constantly in prayer? What is he doing? And it's this question I want to reflect on and think about. We've read those examples. The disciples have noticed it. They want Jesus to teach them how to pray. But what is Jesus actually doing in prayer? And so I want to draw three conclusions of what we've seen in those examples. Look at them together and see what does, what conclusion can we draw from, from what prayer is and what Jesus is doing in prayer? Why is he praying? Because if we don't understand that, then we're tempted just to imitate the mannerisms and the customs and miss the true heart of prayer, the true reason of prayer. What are we doing when we pray? And so let's consider what Jesus does. Number one, his prayers demonstrate a communion with God. Prayer is communion with God. What strikes me about Jesus' prayers is that he would so often, as a pattern, head to a mountain, head to the wilderness, head to a desolate place so he could be alone and pray. I don't just think it was the noises around him were too distracting. That that Jesus felt too burdened by all the different pressures. That that his anxiety level was increasing because of all the demands. But I'm convinced the reason why he got alone from the crowds is because he wanted to be alone with God. To commune with his father. To be in a place of isolation and of solitude from the crowds, but in a place of communion and fellowship with his father. That's why he would withdraw to desolate places. He didn't need me time. He didn't need rest time, downtime, or lazy time. He wanted to be alone to commune with God. And to commune with God is the idea that we are, we are sharing our, our private thoughts, our, our desires, our longings, our challenges, our griefs. To have a time of fellowship with God. It, it, the, like thing, the, the closest thing I can fathom to illustrate it is, and for those who are in families, you can, you can picture this, you know, sometimes the, the, the household is a place of chaos. And there are times when as a husband, I just want to take my wife, put her in the car and like, let's go somewhere. <laughs> I want time with you. Let's commune together. Let's just get away. And so, There are times when we want to do that with a relationship in our life. And there must be times when we need to do that. We want to do that with God. I just need to get away. I need to take out the earplugs. I I need to stop saying, I'm I'm just going to check one more thing on my phone. I'm just going to do one more task. Because you know what? That happens. Then you have no time for God. And so we put all of that away and say, I need alone time with God. I must commune with God. I I have a burden on my heart. I must share that with God. I must be, be brought up into the heavenly realm, realms rather than being consumed with these earthly concerns all around me. Our soul should be drawn to God in a relationship of longing and affection, of comfort and stability. And I think so often we, we don't commune with God because we've, we've never even sought to practice this kind of communion with God. We don't even know what we're missing. Our lives are so full of noise and busyness and tasks and activities that we've never taken time out just to commune with God. We thought that prayer is just asking for things. And so, well, I'll go and I'll just ask God for things. And now what else do I do? I've asked him. He knows. But are we communing with him? Are we delighting to share, 
with God. You know, we can replace communion with God with many substitutes. There are people who feel a sense of connectedness when they want to get away from the busyness of life and they go out to the mountains. They go out to nature. And, and it's out in nature that they then feel a, a place of, of rest and of peace. But they're substituting the creation for the creator as they seek communion with something. There are those who, who enjoy just grasping a warm cup of coffee or immersing themselves in a good book or in a show or in a movie or giving themselves to relationships with other people or giving themselves to a hobby and a project. We all need something that we can go and cling to to get away from the, the regular routine and the busyness of life. And those things so often can be a substitute of communion with God and keep us prayerless. I'm reminded of Susanna Wesley. She had many, I forget how many children she had, 17, 18, whatever. The, but she would, her husband was typically away, but she would get away with God by taking a blanket and throwing it over her head. And the kids knew if mom was on her bed with the blanket over her head, she's communing with God. Leave her alone. She'll be back soon. And so whatever we have to do to make time to be alone with God, we see that in Jesus' life. That's the first thing that strikes me. He just wanted to be with his father. Secondly, Jesus' prayer demonstrates submission to the father. His prayer demonstrates a communion with God and a submission to the father, a submission to the father's will. This is why Jesus comes before the Father in times of decision, in times of transi- transition, in times before a revelation, in times before there is, a, there is a change in his life or, or something that knew that it's about to begin. He comes before the Father in submission to his will in prayer. We see this when he chose the 12. We see, them, see this at his baptism. We see the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus, the son comes before the father and is in submission to the father. And so not only is there a communion with God, but there's a bringing of the will to God to seek to submit to God, to be led by God, to have God's guidance. And so we do that in prayer. And so the question for you then is, are your prayers an indication of your submission to the father? Think about the times when we do pray. Do our prayers demonstrate that we have come to the Father in prayer in order to submit ourselves to Him? Or do we, which could be often the case, come towards God because we have a plan, we have a desire, we have a goal, and God, you need to serve me to get that goal done. And so I'm coming to you in prayer. And I need you to do this for me. I've already thought lots about it. Now you need to get up there and and act. And so that kind of prayer betrays not a submission of us to the Father, but a reversal where we think the Father is in submission to us. And he can use his power and his wisdom and his might to get things done that we need to get done. An indication of this is when we make major decisions and then when it's all over, we say, oh yeah, I forgot to pray. Or when we do pray, but after we're already settled in our mind, I already know what, what's right. And so now I'm going to come before the Lord in prayer and ask him just to, to make it so. This attitude reveals that our prayers are not in submission to the Father. Do you have a desire to submit body and soul before God? Is that your heart? To follow his ways? In all your ways, acknowledge him. To submit your wisdom to his wisdom? If that is your heart, then that ought to lead into a desire to pray. To pray. To be submissive to God in prayer. And so we see this in Jesus' life. Even the Son of God. Submitting his will. Not my will be done, but yours. That's what he prayed. And so prayer is a, the language of submission. So communion with God, submission to the Father. And then thirdly, what we see in Jesus' prayers are answered prayers. When we see Jesus praying, we see things happening. 
His prayers are effective. And this perhaps, above communion with God, above submission to the Father, the idea of answered prayer will encourage a new believer to pray and might discourage an older believer from praying. And what I mean by that is that a new believer hears about prayer and says, wow, this is great. You mean I can just bring this before the father and he'll just do this? You know, my, my sin, my infirmities, my weaknesses, uh, the things that I want healed, you know, the, the wealth that I want, the house that I want, the family that I want, I can just bring this to the Lord in prayer and then boom, he's going to instantaneously do it all. But then the older believers, when you talk about answered prayer, they might be discouraged because they're like, well, there are many things I've prayed for over the years. And they've gone unanswered. And so now I'm even weary and even hesitant to bring these things before the Lord because, well, I don't want to be let down again with more unanswered prayer. Now, as we consider this idea of answered prayer, it is easy for us to wrongly conclude that prayer is some kind of magic wand or a genie in the bottle. There are so many examples on television, on the internet, and in churches where, where prayer is treated as some kind of magical incantation. And, and, and you say these words and, and this will happen. And if it doesn't, well, the problem is not with God and his desire to answer prayer because God wants everyone healed and he wants everyone whole and he wants everyone well and he doesn't want suffering and so if your prayers don't work, then it's not God's fault. It's actually your own fault. You didn't have enough faith. And so you see so many new Christians who are brought to a place of despair thinking, I just don't have enough faith. Otherwise, my prayers would work. But they, 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 they missed the, the true nature of prayer. And then older believers who have prayed, we're so prone to forget the many times that God has answered prayer. So often we have the attitude of, what have you done for me lately? You didn't answer my prayer last week. But we forget about the prayers that we have offered up, even in our weaknesses, uh, even in, in, in not in a, in a fervent, earnest way in which God answered so wonderfully. And we forget about those. This is why some believers have, have committed to write down their prayers and to journal them so they can look back and see, wow, the Lord did answer my prayers. How did I forget that? And so what we see in Jesus' life, in his baptism, in his transfiguration, in casting out demons and calming the wind and the waves, is that his prayers were powerful and effective. And he promises us, if we ask anything according to the Father's will, he hears us and we have what we ask. And so our goal when we consider answered prayer is not try to, to muster up enough willpower or this, this substance of faith in our mind, almost like we're trying to charge up Santa's sleigh so he can fly. But our goal is to submit ourselves to the will of the Father so that we're in tune with his word, we're in tune with his will. And so when we pray, we're praying according to his will. And when we do so, we have an assurance that he will hear and he will answer. That's the goal. And so that will come about as we're absorbed in his word, as we commune with him, as we submit ourselves to the father, and then it flows into answered prayer. And so looking at Jesus' examples, those are the, the three big ones. Like why did Jesus pray? Well, he prayed to commune with God. He prayed to submit himself to the father. And he prayed because it demonstrated the effectiveness of prayer. Even before he raised Lazarus from the dead, remember what he said? He prayed to the father and he's like, I'm praying out loud. <laughs> Not so that, that God needs to hear me, so that people around me might hear me. And they know that I'm seeking the Father in prayer. And that will effectively raise Lazarus from the dead. This example of Jesus is what we see not only in him, but we see that in Paul, in John, in Peter, in Daniel, Elijah, and Job. These are men who sought communion with God to submit their wills to the Father's will and to seek him for answered prayer. 
This is what it means to pray. And so Jesus' prayers drive us to say, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's what one of the disciples said. After all these examples of Jesus communing with God, submitting to the Father, and answered prayer, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Now at this point, we might feel incredibly inadequate to pray. But the the good news and what is a comfort to us is that we can be taught to pray. So if you feel, oh boy, my prayers do not reflect the communion with God, a submission to the God or submission to the Father, uh, nor, nor do I see answered prayer as if I expect in my life. And so we can say, not with defeat, not with sorrow, but we can say actually with, with joy and eagerness and anticipation, Lord, teach me to pray. Teach me to pray, Lord. And we can be taught to pray. And if you don't embrace and accept your inadequacy, then you won't strive to pray. If you leave here thinking, well, my prayers are not that great, but they're okay and I don't really need to really improve much. Well, you, you won't improve much. But we're like, no, Lord, you need to teach, teach me to pray. There's an inadequacy there. There's sin on my part. I need to come before you in prayer. And this is what his disciples said. Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, help us to commune with God. Lord, teach us to submit ourselves to the Father in prayer. Lord, teach us about answered prayer in our lives. Teach us to pray. And notice how they say in Luke 11, 1, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Communities are marked by how they pray. John's disciples were marked by their prayers. And we see this not only in John's disciples, but as archaeologists found all those scrolls in the Qumran caves, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, they found they they had a certain pattern of prayers in that community. Uh, the biggest example in our day and age is, is Roman Catholicism. They have their, their prayers. The Lord's Prayer. The, the um, Mary's Prayer. They have all these different prayers that you recite and that you follow and that define a community. We also see it in ancient Judaism. They also had fixed prayers and fixed prayer days. And a certain liturgy to their prayers. This is a pattern among religious people to adopt certain formulaic prayers. We saw in the 17th century when revival and reformation had come to England and the Puritans were seeking to purify the church of God and then the king introduced this common book of prayer and the Puritans rejected it, not because it was heretical or ungodly, But they were against the practice of rote prayers, of of formulaic prayers, of having someone just up there and just reading a book of prayers and going through the motions. And because the Puritans refused to accept the common book of prayer, they were all ejected from their pulpits. They were willing to suffer, to pray in a way that was in the manner of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says here in verse number two, and he said to them, when you pray, say, and then we have father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come and so forth. Jesus is not saying when you pray, repeat these words, repeat after me. And the gospel of Matthew says, when you pray, pray like this, here is a pattern. Here are, here are the elements of prayer. And we'll be examining these in coming weeks. But Jesus is not prescribing a set formula, a set recipe for prayer. But the reason why we like those recipes, those formulas, those rote prayers is because prayer is hard. And I know that even as you hear this sermon today and you're like, well, I need to work on, on my communion with God. You know, if you tried that before, it's hard. And this is why formulaic prayers are so acceptable among religious communities because they're like, well, prayer is hard. And so just give us something that we can read, something that we can recite. And even if it is done with good intentions, it soon becomes heartless. 
and devoid of true communion and true submission and true passion for God. Raquel's family is Roman Catholic. We were once, were recently at a funeral there. And, and the priest gets up with his, his book of, even it says in the front, manual for baptisms and funerals. You know, he opens up to the right page and just starts reading. And you can tell that it, it gets to a point where there's a blank line where he needs to insert the name of the deceased. And we've been in, in occasions before where he gets to that line. He's like, what's, what's their name again? Okay. I mean, and then he just keeps reading. And he's reading as if he's, he's reading a newspaper. He's just, it's heartless and it's, it's going through the motions, meaningless. And what was intended for true communion with God and to sympathize with those who have just lost a loved one and to pour out your heart with God to them and with them, it has become now just a, a formulaic recipe. And so Jesus here is not teaching us to do that at all. But prayer is hard, which it drives us to be tempted to that end. But Spurgeon gives this advice, and he's referring to the Puritans when he says this. He says, pray until you can pray. Pray to be helped to pray. And do not give up praying because you cannot pray. For it is when you think you cannot pray, that is when you are praying. That's what the Puritans say, pray until you pray. If you start praying, like, I don't feel like this is right, Lord, keep praying. Keep praying until you're brought into the place of communion with God. Keep praying until you experience fellowship with God. Keep praying until you are submitting to the Father's will. Keep praying until you pray. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to look at what is called the Lord's Prayer, really the disciples' prayer. But lest this sermon strictly be an introduction to the topic of prayer, I do want to mention just the the first word of what Jesus mentions in his prayer to his disciples. Look at verse number two. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Father. That's how Jesus begins. And it's here that I wish to end us today. Because I want us to be encouraged to pray. Even though we haven't made it through this text, and in many respects, well, well, what did Jesus teach to them on how to pray? We haven't gone through that yet, but where Jesus begins is so important for us to begin. When he says, when you pray, say, Father. And why is this important? Because when we're talking about communion with God, submission to the Father's will, and then answered prayer as we pray in keeping with the Father's will, then it's important to know that we are in prayer to the Father. That our communion is to the Father. And think about how Jesus calls us to address God as Father. God is the creator. He is holy. He is all-powerful. He is infinite in all of his perfections. He is unstained from anything evil or sinful. And if we were to see his face, we would be destroyed. We can't take in his incomprehensible glory. We're too finite. We're too sinful. We're too weak and frail. And so here, this almighty, all-powerful, all-infinite God, Jesus says, come to him and address him as Father. And as Father, it reminds us that he is the one who shows compassion and mercy to us. As Christians, we address God, this immense, infinite, supernatural being. We, We address him as Father because he loves us. We address him as father because he sent his son to die in our place, to pay the price for our sin, to rise again on the third day, and thereby reconcile sinners like us to a holy and blameless God, to adopt us into his family, to forgive us our sins and our trespasses. And because God has loved us and showed mercy and grace towards us, he says, when you pray, say, Father. And an earthly father delights to hear from his children. An earthly father will go out of his way to care for and to love his children. An earthly father will will drop even the busyness of their life and put that to the side so they could hear their, their children. An earthly father, will he not hear the cries of their children if they're in distress? Will not the pleas for a child who desires something, a good thing, will not a good earthly father hear that cry and answer that request? 
And so Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, and be reminded that you have a heavenly Father who's infinitely better than a good Father here on earth. And so He will hear you in your prayer. He will show compassion to you. He delights to hear you. He's never too busy for you. He's not indifferent to you. He's not distracted. He doesn't have better things to do. He is your Father. He will listen to you. He will care for you. He will guide you when you need guidance. He will comfort you when you are sorrowful. He will help you in your afflictions. He will deliver you from your sin. Oh, he will bestow such riches of grace and mercy and love upon you because he's your father and because you have made, been made his son, his child through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's an encouragement for us to pray. And we're going to continue going through this prayer. But I hope that is what is ringing in our mind this week. That as we come before the Lord in prayer, we pray until we pray. Prayer is hard. But prayer is communion with God. It's submission to the Father. It is seeking His will so that our prayers may be answered. And under all this is that umbrella, is that reality that God is our Father. And so let's pray. Let's pray until we pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth, this reality. I pray that you would teach us to pray. Oh God, I confess my own weaknesses in this area. Oh God, I pray that you would help me and and help others here as we seek to, to draw close to the Lord Jesus Christ as a disciple and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Oh God, even impress upon us here the example of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Impress upon us your fatherly care and love towards us. Oh God, and move us to desire to commune with you, to desire to live in submission to you, to desire to see your power in our lives through answered prayer. Oh God, do this for your sake. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.